This last of the doctrines of grace is perhaps the one area that is generally less controversial. I've taken the time to read from that local denomination statement of faith and their rejection of Calvinism. And this last point is the one that is conspicuous by its absence. Now, I feel in part the reason for that is that even this last statement in the doctrines of grace, this last statement is also not properly understood. I mean, they're not clear as to how it was taught historically. And perhaps if they understood that, they'd be more quick to reject it. It's one of those quirks, if you like. Some of these doctrines we've seen have been misrepresented and therefore rejected. This one is often misrepresented and then accepted. A lack of understanding is at the core of these problems. I am, of course, speaking about what we refer to as the fifth point of the doctrines of grace, namely the perseverance of the saints. Now, there are several terms used for this particular doctrine. Some may speak of eternal security. Others will use the convenient concept of being once saved, always saved. I've given you the title of the perseverance of the saints. Others say it should be the preservation of the saints. And so you've got these kind of four terms, eternal security, once saved, always saved, the preservation of the saints, or the perseverance of the saints. Now, historically, the term that was used was the perseverance of the saints. And the reason for that was it was a rejection or a reaction to the denial of this truth by those who said that people could have faith for a season and then that faith not persist. They could have faith, but the faith would not endure. It would not persevere. And so the statement, again, by the canons of Dort was to defend the idea that those who did believe the gospel, that faith would persevere, that the saints would persevere. Now, we understand and we'll see tonight, they will only persevere because they are preserved by God's grace. And so preservation has tremendous biblical warrants. There is no perseverance without preservation. But because of preservation, there will then be perseverance, and thus we can talk about eternal security. And we can also say, yes, it is true to say that once we are saved, we are always saved. However, in a climate of shallow Christianity and easy believism, there developed an abuse of these truths. A profession of faith was thought to be equivalent to true faith. The reciting of a prayer or making a decision publicly made was thought to be decisive. And so I would meet people on the doors in Northern Ireland and you would ask them, do they know the Lord? And they would say, yes, I was saved in a children's meeting in your church when I was five years old. And you would say to them, well, where do you go to church now? Oh, I don't go to church now. Uh, do you read your Bible now or pray now? No, 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 but I was, I was saved when I was five years old. And I was told, once saved, always saved. I'm not suggesting for a second they were incorrectly taught, but they misapplied 
that particular idea. And in the broader, shallow evangelical world, they were glad to consider themselves as being a carnal Christian. After all, Schofield in his study Bible refers to that very concept, that you can be a carnal Christian. You can be truly saved, your sins forgiven, but Christ is not on the throne. And therefore, if our sins are forgiven, we've got home in heaven, but we live carnally, we live like the devil, but we are certain that we are going to be saved in the end. So you've got false assurance of salvation drawn out of a misunderstanding of this particular doctrine. Once saved, always saved. Souls who had no heart for Christ fully expected to go to heaven and be with Christ. That was not the biblical doctrine. You see, the biblical doctrine explained and defined by the Reformed faith was not once saved, always saved, no matter how you live, but once saved, always saved, with a proper understanding of what it meant to be saved. You see, the key issue in once saved, always saved, is rightly defining salvation. Once you define that right, then everything else will come together. But if you define salvation as a decision or a prayer, and that's all that's required, well, then you're going to fall short in this area. We do affirm, gladly, wholeheartedly affirm, that a sinner is saved by faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, not by our works, not of our merit, in Christ alone without any works of the flesh. We affirm that. But we also understand the Bible to teach that such faith arises in a reborn heart. And that changed heart, the glory of a regenerate soul, that changed heart loves Christ and loves God's truth. Thus, the faith that God gives persists and endures so that those who believe in Christ are said to live by faith, not exercising faith once and never again, but continually exercising faith. I was saying to somebody at the baptism service this afternoon, I love to sing the hymn, Just As I Am, I Come. And some see that hymn as being, well, that's, that's only when you're first saved. No, the believer is continually coming to Christ, not being saved again and again and again, but the faith that begins the Christian life is a faith that persists, and we always delight to run to Christ and rest in Christ. And so continually, O Lamb of God, I come. And thus properly defined, it is indeed the perseverance of the saints that those who are truly saved live out a life of obedient, persevering faith. Now, before you challenge me, I did not say for a second they live out a life of perfect, obedient faith. But persistent, persevering, obedient faith. Can the child of God backslide for a season? Of course they can, and they do. But the child of God lives a life by the Spirit of God of persistent, obedient, persevering faith. So the truth of eternal security should be breathtaking for us in its comfort, but it's got to be carefully defined. But as tonight we seek to recap, again, Romans 1 to 8, I want to give you six lines of evidence from Romans 
that undergird our confidence in the saving grace of God. I want to really major on the preservation of God's, uh, the preservation of God in the life of the saints. That it is His work that keeps us. I want to major on that, but I won't neglect also the idea of perseverance. But you'll see in your outline, just, folks, I, I know, I, I'm tired, you're tired. It's, it's been a long, a long day out in the sun in the afternoon. I thought, well, are six points too many? But then I thought, well, well, six points going quickly might be easier. So we, we can do six points quickly. Not six long points, six short points. And so let's look at these six things together. First of all, please note that God's purpose will be done. That's the central point of Romans 8, 28 through 39. That's what he's saying. Verse 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? It is that those who are foreknown will be glorified. Verse 29, for, though, for whom he did foreknow, them he also glorified. Oh, pastor, you've left out that major chunk in the middle. I know. But the connection is that those he did foreknow, those he loved before time began, them he also glorified. That is the sovereign purpose of God to save a company of people named by his name. That is God's purpose. That is the aim and the objective of God. Now, one thing I, you, you will see that's not present in your outline is a reference to God's covenant. Now, if we're to properly understand eternal security and preservation, we should understand that covenantally. Uh, that God has entered into a promise to save. And that promise is worked out in human history in the coming of Christ Jesus. That's Romans 9 through 11 more fully. And so we'll get to covenantal things later on. But the purpose of God is worked out in an historical covenant. But it is the very simple truth that it is the aim and the objective of God to save sinners. That is his purpose. So with that in mind, turn back to Romans chapter, or sorry, John chapter 6. Go back to John chapter 6. For keeping in mind the purpose of God, we see again language of security in John 6, 39 and 40. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's a statement of the purpose of God in the language of this is the Father's will. Now, will here being stronger than a simple desire, but rather a purposeful determination to accomplish something. And what does he want to accomplish? It is that all those he has given to the Son should indeed be raised up at the last day. And so the Son says that he is doing the Father's will, and he will ensure that none are lost. Nothing is lost. No one is lost. Now, he is not suggesting that he will not lose those who have already come to faith. That's true, okay? I'm not saying it's not true. He will not lose any who have already come to faith. But rather, he's making the point that he will lose none of those given to him by the Father. 
even those who are yet to believe, who are yet outside the kingdom, the other sheep who are not of this fold, they're also going to come. And he's saying, I'm not going to lose any of them. Those who believe already and those who will still come to believe. Christ will lose none and the Father's aim will be achieved. But note the language carefully of verse number 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, and please note, and believeth on him. Now the language of believing here is not a belief that is a once and for all act. It is a continual faith that those who see the Son delight in the Son, and it's not that they believe for one moment and then leave it off the next moment, but rather they persist in that faith. That company are not lost in the purpose of God's. You see, think about it for a moment or two. In what ways, hypothetically, could it be possible for God's purpose not to be achieved? Again, please understand, I'm thinking hypothetically here. God has got a will. He's given a people to the Son. None of those people will be lost. Hypothetically, how could he fail to achieve his purpose? Well, you could say a change of mind. His purpose changes. Or perhaps an external power could prevent its accomplishment. Perhaps Satan could prevent God achieving his will. Or perhaps human free will could have such power that it could prevent God from achieving his will. You see, when you go down the lines of hypothetical, you see the fact that what is possible is impossible. Absolutely impossible for God to change his mind. Absolutely impossible for any higher power, man's free will, or Satan himself from preventing God from achieving his purposes. Not possible. Absolutely impossible. God will always achieve what he purposes to achieve. And Christ has sealed that with his precious blood. That's why verse number 38 says this. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And of course, he's given reference to his atoning work, which leads to the second of our six points, and that is that Christ's passion will be applied. I'm referring, of course, to the Lord's sufferings here. Back to Romans chapter 8. You see, if our first point links together unconditional election with perseverance, our second point links the definite atonement with perseverance. And it is the fact that Christ's atoning sacrifice will be applied. We saw this when we looked at verse number 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely Give us all things. That is an assertion that Christ's work will be successfully applied. And one of the all things that we mentioned was faith itself. You know, you have some who have the idea that there's a general atonement, a universal atonement available to all. And what makes a difference is faith. But they forget the fact 
that in the atonement, faith itself is secured. So if the atonement is general, then all believe, because faith is secured in the atonement itself. It's one of the all things that guarantee that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For only for no, He's going to glorify, and Christ's death is going to guarantee the all things required to get a sinner to glory. And faith is required to get a sinner to glory. You see, we saw this last time. Turn again to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we saw this last week in terms of the doctrine of the effectual call. Verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, and not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And again, we saw, leave, leave aside the suffering issue. Faith is a gift that comes from God. It is given to us to believe on him. But note, it said that that comes in the behalf of Christ. That language, the language of Christ here is a language of his work as our mediating Messiah. Because of all of his works, we are given the gift of faith. Because of what he's accomplished, we are given the gift of faith. Because of incarnation, we're given the gift of faith. His, his life of righteousness, we're given the gift of faith. His death, we're given the gift of faith. His intercessory ministry, we are given the gift of faith. Because of Christ, we have the gift. It is the absolute guarantee that what Christ has purchased on Calvary will be applied And so if God gives us all things for Christ's sake and all things with Christ, well, one of those all things is a persevering faith. It's impossible for us to have Christ and not have the gift of faith that perseveres. So all of God's grace were kept by the power of God through faith. The faith that lays hold on Christ and his blessings is a faith that Christ's death has secured. Christ's passion will be applied. Thirdly, the divine pardon will be perpetual. It will not be reversed. Again, Romans chapter 8, now the verse number 33 and 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And again, the language here is the language of possibility. Who can successfully lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who who can come to the courtroom of God and say to God, that person has no right to be accepted? Isn't that what Satan tries? He's the accused of the brethren. Even Satan himself cannot enter the courts of God and say to a believer, or to God about a believer that they have no right to stand in his presence. Because it says here, it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's a connected thought. Who condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This chapter begins with the words, there is therefore now no condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? No one can condemn because Christ died, rose again, who even now makes intercession for us. 
Oh, dear folks, you know the doctrine of justification, I trust. It is that legal declaration that comes from the court of God, that once and for all legal declaration based upon Christ's righteousness, that when a sinner believes the gospel, they are no longer guilty, they are innocent, and more than that, they are righteous. Not for their righteousness, but for Christ and Christ's alone. But what you see in this passage is the truth that the declaration of God in our justification is perpetual. It will not be reversed. You see, some may say, well, yes, I understand that if you believe in Christ, you're justified at that time. But if, if you turn away from the Lord, then that justification is reversed. But that's not Paul's line of reasoning here. He's making the point that those who are foreknown are called and they're justified and they're glorified. And he's making the assertion that their glorification is certain because their justification is perpetual. It will not be reversed. You see, praise God, our justification is not grounded in our righteousness. It's on Christ's righteousness. Therefore, it cannot fail. It's grounded upon Christ's perfect righteousness. Therefore, it cannot be denied. It's grounded in Christ's past work. Therefore, it's already accepted. And Paul argues for our security from justification, implying a permanent standing before God. Now, here he's not arguing for perpetual faith. That's assumed. But he's arguing that the believer cannot be taken from God's love because justification is perpetual. Fourthly, the son's prayers will be answered. Verse number 34 again. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, it was risen again. He is even at the right hand of God. He also maketh intercession for us. Christ intercedes for those for whom he died. You must never divide the work of Christ. We can say of Christ's work of redemption that it is one glorious act of redemption. He redeems us. You say, well, well, what do you mean by that? Well, well, I mean all of Christ's work is involved in that one act of redemption. If you take one part out of that work, our redemption fails. All of it together is Christ's work, His coming his living, his dying, his being buried, his rising, his intercession, all of this is required for redemption. It's all one grand act of redemption. And the people in view in his death are in view in his intercession. He intercedes for them and his prayers are always answered. His intercession is personal. He is alive. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. His presentation or his, his intercession is the presentation of his virtue. He, he shows his blood in the courts of heaven. He presents himself and the merits of his virtue before God and says, because of me, they cannot be condemned. His intercession is prayerful. He prays for our grace. And the Lord says again regarding his own prayer life, he says to the Father, I knew that thou hearest me always. 
Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Intercession is another ground of our eternal security. If Christ has died for you today, Christ is praying for you today. And if Christ is praying for you today, there is no possibility of his prayers not being heard. And you cannot be lost. You say, Pastor, how do I know Christ died for me? Have you taken him as your Savior? Is he your Savior? Have you come to him by faith and said, Lord Jesus, here's all my sin. You're my only hope. Christ Jesus dies for sinful men. And for those for whom he died, he prays. He prays tonight and that we'd persevere to the end and be saved. Fifthly, the Spirit's presence will be effective. Again, back to Romans chapter 8. Let me highlight some verses. Verse number 4. That the righteous of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse number 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Verse number 13, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You cannot be a Christian and not have the Spirit. And the Spirit cannot indwell you and do nothing. He is not a frustrated ineffectual agent in your life. The Spirit works successfully in the lives of those He indwells. Hence, in summary terms, the Spirit's presence gives us a life of holiness. Imperfect but genuine. Verse 13, If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Again, that if is not so much an if of uncertainty as it is an if of inevitability. That those who've been raised by the Spirit, verse 11, they've been quickened by the Spirit that dwells in you. Those who have such a Spirit do indeed mortify the deeds of the body. Now, they do so slowly at times. At some times, the deeds of the body go through a very slow and painful death, but they die. And by God's grace, they die. And they do so by the Spirit of God. We live a life of holiness. And we live a life of devotion. It is by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit works in us that spirit of prayer and devotion and a desire to get before God and call upon the Lord. Therefore, because the Spirit's presence is effective, there will be no such thing as a carnal Christian. But the perseverance of the saints in the power of the Spirit of God. Now at this point I should say something. I'm not denying the potential for false faith and apostasy. The parable of the sower makes it clear that some receive the word with joy, go on for a season, and then for various reasons fall away. The Bible does teach the apostasy of false professors. But the work of the Spirit produces endurance. And if I can put it to you this way, 
The only reason you're here tonight enduring in faith is because of the power of the Spirit. Not because you're better than somebody apostatized, but because of the power of the Spirit in your life. Sixthly, finally, the Lord's power will overcome. And here I'm referring to the last verse. Of course, it starts in verse number 38. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able. It's that word able that I want to focus upon. It is a word that speaks of power. And it's one of those group words that we get a word dynamite from in other words. It speaks of power and ability. It's used over in chapter 16. Uh, Romans 16 and the verse number 25, the word is used there. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. And so you see in Paul's writing here, there's a contrast. God is able and others are not able. The point coming that God is greater than any power that may seek to draw you from Christ's love. God is more powerful. So even the most powerful agency in this world will not be able to take you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what the Lord taught in John chapter 10? I know my sheep, they hear my voice, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. Now we have the word man put into that in our authorized version. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Just any. No angel. No devil. Nothing is able to pluck you out of the Father's hand. Verse 39. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The Father and the Son holding the saints of God in their hand and none can pluck them out of that grip. You know, sometimes, sometimes we get discouraged, don't we? We think our grip upon God is weak. You know, it's like the child crossing the road. You know, you, you, you come to the road and the parent says, Take my hand. And they go across the road. And then the child begins to pull. You know, the child's security in that moment is not in their grip. It's in the grip of the father. The powerful grip secures the safety of the little one. And so it is for us, the children of God. Left to ourselves, we will give up and let go but the power of God keeps us by his grace. He is able to keep us from falling. Jude verse 24. Well, could the apostle say, and we sang this afternoon, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able. I love the words we all do of the 41st chapter of Isaiah, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. It's the hand of God that upholds us. Charles Simeon says this of that verse, 
if but a fellow creature were with us in a season of difficulty, we should take courage. Especially if we knew that he was competent to afford us the protection we desired. Challenges come and a fellow creature comes alongside us and we we get comfort from that. He says this, how much more then may we be satisfied if Almighty God be with us? And not only with us, but holding us. Held in the power of God's almighty hand. Dear child of God, you will persevere to the end because of the power of the God of heaven. Dear unsaved soul tonight, I plead with you. Come to Christ tonight and be saved eternally. Don't fear coming to Christ with the danger that I don't think I'll be able to keep it. Come to Christ in the assurance that God will keep you in your faith. And dear child of God, tonight I encourage you, engage this evening in Trinitarian worship. Note the points we've seen tonight are points whereby all members of the Trinity are active in your eternal security. We worship a triune God and we're kept by the triune God. Herman Bavink said this in closing. Faith in the preservation of God should make true believers haughty and careless. Say some. If this is all true, preacher, that's going to make the children of God careless in their Christian living. They're going to presume upon grace. But he says this. On the contrary, it is a true root of humility, filial fear, true godliness, endurance in all battles, fervent prayers, steadfastness in the cross, and in the confession of the truth, as well as firm joy in God. You understand these truths. You will not be careless. The Spirit of God makes you careful And your own heart, out of gratitude, is determined to walk and serve the Lord. The gospel is all-consuming. By that I mean it is the most important thing in our lives. And it's impossible for someone who's come to faith in Christ to have a careless attitude to the glories of the gospel. Apostates are careless. The children of God at times may venture into carelessness. But by God's grace, we value these things. And our assurance is grounded on the work of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer. Eternal God, we thank you for your help given this evening. For a season in the Word and considering again these glorious truths. So much to take in and to comprehend. And yet may the fullness of these truths, may they encourage our souls as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost work together for our eternal security. We thank you again that those who are justified will indeed be glorified. For there are many of us here and we know we're justified. We know our sins are forgiven. We know peace with God. But we sometimes question our glorification Oh, Lord, help us to walk confidently with assurance 
and enjoy the confidence of the gospel as we seek to serve thee in these days. Bless this congregation. May your hand rest and abide upon us as we finish in Christ's precious name. Amen.